I want to show you guys a picture that you may have seen this weekend going around in the news cycle. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and this one really is. New York City, 1956, Good Friday. It's striking because much has changed. Much has changed in our world in the decades since that picture was taken. And I got to ask some honest questions this morning. Have, have the changes in the world led to more peace in hearts out there? Have the changes in the world led to more clarity? Has it led to more joy for the majority of folks in the world? Has the change in the world brought answers uh, to the big questions of life Questions that apologist Josh McDowell used to ask on secular college universities. He would go in there and he would ask the questions, who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? And he said often the response even then was eerie silence. Well, I believe this Resurrection Sunday morning that all of the answers to those questions and more are found in the events we commemorate this weekend. I want to start at the cross. I'm going to go to the cross, and, and I was thinking about a verse this week in Psalms. came across it in my quiet time. It speaks of a feast. Elisha or Daniel, if you put that up there. Psalm 36, 7, and 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. <coughs> They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 36, 7 and 8. And Good Friday, as our family thought about the suffering of our Lord on, on, on the cross, it just hit me that because of his suffering, those who come to him in faith get to enjoy a wondrous feast. A wondrous feast, an abundant feast. Feast. I want you to think about this as you enjoy your feast this afternoon. There's, there's a deeper feast we celebrate today. Think of what we get to enjoy in Jesus Christ. First, Jesus himself. What does he speak about himself in John 6, 35? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Obviously, he's talking about something different than physical hunger there. He's talking for that longing, the deepest longings we all have. He, he fills that void, right? Living water. John 4, 13, Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this physical water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You remember that old rock song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? Jesus is saying, you want lasting satisfaction. It, it's right here. It, it's in me. Jesus himself is at the core of that abundant feast. But every good Easter feast has some sides as well, right? You don't just have the ham. You're looking, if you're like me, you're looking forward to that mac and cheese or, or that potato salad or whatever it is going to be there. And I call these things sides loosely because they're actually at the center of the, the salvation spread. But I want to talk about three other parts of this feast that we can enjoy through faith in Jesus. 
For that, we're going to turn to Romans 3. And the words in red are the three parts. We'll read it, and then we'll unpack each one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's both bad news and good news in that verse. The bad news is obvious. All have sinned. You say, what's the good news? Well, it's been well said that sinners are the only kind of people Jesus came to save. That's good news. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. If, if you're a sinner, there is a Savior. That's all of us. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Justification is the first side I'm talking about. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Some people say you say propitiation, and sometimes people say bless you. What does that mean? We're going to unpack it. Justification, redemption, propitiation to be received by faith. Justification. If you were to ask some people, what does it mean to be justified through faith in Christ? They might say to be declared not guilty. And that would be good news. But I'm here to tell you that does not go far enough. Justification is even better than not guilty. What justification means is that in Christ you are declared righteous. You say, how could that be? I'm a sinner. Because his righteousness is credited to your account. More than not guilty, you're, you're declared righteous. But it's been well said that this whole idea of justifying sinners is quite a, a dilemma, and I put that in quotes because there's no real dilemma for an all-knowing, all-powerful God, but we look at it and say, whoa, how does a just God do that? Because a just God is, is holy. He has wrath against sin. Sin must be punished. So how does a, a just God justify sinners? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. 26, as he talks about the cross of Christ. The cross was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just at the cross because his wrath is poured out on God the Son. For your sin... In my sin, he's the justifier because those who put their faith in the son and his sacrifice receive him as their payment. My dad unpacked this idea powerfully at our Wednesday night prayer meeting. We were talking about a God who's both just and merciful. And I'm going to share what he shared. Just imagine you're in a wilderness fort and rations are running low. Food is running out, and so it's very tight. You're only allowed to have so much every day. And word comes to the commander that somebody has been stealing food at the fort. And the commander says, whoever it is will be whipped. Find out who it is. And all the people go out listening, watching. And they come back to him a little while later. They say, we find out, found out who's been stealing the food. He said, who is it? They said, it's your mother. It's your mother. He said, bring her here to the whipping post. Gather everybody together. Have her chained to the post. And she was. And just before the man with the whip got there to begin the punishment, 
the commander of the fort walked up behind his mom, wrapped his arms around her, and said, now you may begin. That's what we're talking about when we look at the cross. He's just because sin must be punished. He's merciful and the justifier because Christ took the punishment you and I deserved that we might be declared righteous. Redemption, that's another one of those Bible words, but you say, what does it mean? Well, in, in their culture, redemption sometimes was attached to the slave market. It's the picture of a slave up for sale. And many wicked masters out there waiting to, to purchase that slave. And if you can imagine, you're, you're there. You're, you're, you are that slave. And, and someone raises their hand to pay for you. And, and, and you go and you expect it to be another wicked master. And he meets you where you're at and he says, no, you've got it all wrong. I, I bought you to set you free and, and to follow me. Not from wicked compulsion, but, 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 but out of a mutual love. I came to set you free. That's redemption. It is finished. Some of the most beautiful words spoken from the cross of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Tetelestai. is associated with receipts in that era. You know, I went to Chick-fil-A the other day. We try to eat more chicken because our <laughs> oldest son works there. We try to keep him going. And guys, don't judge me. I have a lot of sandwiches there, but since we go there a lot, I try to mix it up. This day, I got a spicy chicken salad. Don't take away my man cart. All right. But, but down here, <laughs> right here, what's it say? Visa, 1091. You say, that's an expensive salad. It's got a lot of chicken in it. But what's that do? It shows that it's paid for, right? When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying... Your sins and mine were paid in full. He paid the price to redeem us from sin, the slave market of sin. The third one, propitiation. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. What in the world does that mean? Well, propitiation is a satisfaction of wrath. That means Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath against sin. And it leaves us with a choice. We will either come under the umbrella of Christ's sacrifice, the shield of Christ's sacrifice, so that we will not experience the wrath of God, or we will reject His gift and we will experience His wrath ourselves for all eternity in hell. That is the single most important choice every person on this planet must make. Will we choose by faith to come under the satisfaction of Jesus Christ? Friday, as our family remembered the sacrifice of the cross, we went out back. And I, I drew a cross on a sheet of paper. And I passed it around to each member of the, the family now that even Luke's learning to write. And I wrote Scott's sin on that cross. Carolyn wrote Carolyn's sin. And each one wrote their name, followed by sin. And then we put it in the fire pit and set it on fire. And as we watched it go up in smoke, we listened to the words of one of my favorite hymns. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, 
Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Those are lyrics from how deep the Father's love for us. We think about this feast that Jesus offers. I want us to just let our minds wander around in some verses on forgiveness. And I want you to just meditate for a few moments on how powerful this is for those who come to faith in Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Psalm 103.10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And one more from Romans 4. Listen to these words. Verse 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Some of us needed to hear that today. We all do. I think about what Mark Twain said. He said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. I'll think about that in light of the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. D.L. Moody said it this way, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. How do we receive it? It says right there at the end. To be received by faith, by trust in what Christ has done, by, by surrendering any notion that I can earn my salvation by doing this, that, or the other, that I can earn my righteousness. No, I can't. I need to receive what you've done, Jesus. I trust in what you did for my sin. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I trust in your death and resurrection as the only basis of my righteousness before the Father. Have you done that? That's the invitation this morning. Because you all know coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. It's been said many times over, coming to church don't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It's a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have that? That's what he offers you, this feast that we're talking about. We've talked about the cross Sunday morning now. I want to talk about the resurrection. And i got to thank my wife, Carolyn. She found this picture that I love being a C.S. Lewis fan. We're going to put up our picture of the resurrection. Matthew 28, 6. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. That's what we celebrate this morning. The risen Lord. He's not like many other faith leaders. He's not yet one more martyr in a long line of martyrs. His tomb is empty. That separates him. Right? And yet I know 
when it comes to the resurrection, sometimes there's questions. And that's okay. I've had my own questions. Maybe you have some today. Sometimes there's even objections. Do you, do you have some of those going on? Listen, I want to talk to you about that. There are at least two kinds of objections. Uh, one of them is intellectual. Intellectual objections, because usually when people die, they stay dead, right? So I got this kind of intellectual objection going on here. Josh McDowell would relate to that. Josh McDowell was an atheist. He was an atheist on a college campus, and, and he was living the high life in terms of this world, but he felt a hole inside. But there was a group of Christians on campus that would meet together and study the Bible, and he looked at them, and he's like, they have a joy about them that nobody else around here seems to have. It, it's not ruffled by current events and stuff. They have this peace and he wanted what they had. So he would go to their groups and he would kind of jab and poke at them, ask them questions and, and get up and leave. But finally, they, they challenged him, hey, why don't you go research it for yourself? And, and he set out to do that, to disprove them. What ended up happening was just the opposite. And I want to share some of what he gleaned in his journey of his intellectual objections. I want to share five reasons why it makes sense to believe in the resurrection. I know we receive it by faith, but that does not mean there are not good reasons to believe it. I want to share five that he shared just briefly. Number one, question, where did the church of Jesus Christ begin? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, within walking distance of the tomb where Jesus was buried. They boldly declared that Jesus was alive, and in those early weeks, the church grew by thousands, okay? Being walking distance from the tomb, all it would have taken is for one person to present a body, and it would have put a, put a stop to all that, right? But just the opposite happened. The, the church thrived and spread in Jerusalem and beyond, okay? Second, where were the disciples when Jesus was crucified? They were locked up in a room for fear of the Jews. But as you go on to look at the rest of their lives, every one of them was experienced, experienced torture, and most of them experienced death for boldly proclaiming that Jesus was alive, okay? Now think about this. What, what changed them? From those scared guys in a room to guys who would go to death to proclaim this. They saw the risen Savior, and they received the Holy Spirit, right? It's one thing to be deceived centuries later, okay? But these guys live right then and there. You would think at least one of them, if they, if they knew it was a lie, if they had stolen the body like the cooked up rumor went, that at least one of them would have backed off at the point of execution. Okay, guys, this has gone far enough. I'm out, right? But they didn't. Why? They, they saw the risen Lord. What about this? Thousands of Jewish believers in Christ changing from worship on the Saturday Sabbath to Sunday morning. 
do you have a clue how holy the Sabbath is to the Jews even to this day? What would lead Jews to change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday? That's the day their Messiah rose from the dead. The way Josh McDowell put it, do you know of any other anniversary that's celebrated 52 times a year? I like that. Fourth of the five. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote of many appearances of the risen Jesus. He didn't just rise and go straight to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500, that's a lot of witnesses. Josh McDowell said, could you imagine if this went to court, how long it would take just to get through those witnesses, even if they only had a few minutes each? 500 most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now I want to camp on that phrase, most of whom are still alive. He said most of those 500 are still alive. A lot of skeptics throughout the year have, years have imagined that the, the books of the New Testament were written hundreds of years after the events. Way too long for them to accurately record what happened. It must have turned into legends. Was it that long away? No, Paul says some of these guys are still alive. That's a bold thing to say if he's lying, because people of that generation could say, Paul, <laughs> that didn't happen. Why did he say it? Because it happened. And I want you to listen to what John Warwick Montgomery he was the dean at the Simon Greenleaf School of Law said about when this was written by Paul. In 56 AD, the apostle Paul wrote that over 500 people had seen the risen Jesus and that most of them were still alive. It was just a couple decades later, right? Not these hundreds of years. He says it passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might easily have refuted it simply by producing the body of Jesus. 56 AD. Well, you say a lot of the stuff you're talking about is from the Bible. I got questions about whether or not I can trust the Bible. What's a lot of that come down to? Questions about manuscripts. You know we don't have the originals. Manuscripts are copies of the originals, right? So you think about the manuscripts. What matters with manuscripts? To make sure you're getting accuracy. How many and how close to the actual first writing it was. So, so you assume, well, as far as the, the timing of our most recent manuscript and when it happened, they must be so far away that, that it just discredits everything, right? Well, I want you to listen to Sir Frederick Kenyon. He held a series of posts at the British Museum. He said this, The interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extent evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. 
in the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written now has been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, you say, well, surely there aren't too many of them, right? You know, it's kind of sketchy on that front. Wrong. How many manuscripts of the New Testament alone? In the 1970s, when Josh McDowell wrote The Resurrection Factor, which I'd recommend if you want to go deeper, he could already identify 24,633 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. And he said the number two book at that time in history in manuscript authority was the Iliad by Homer. You know how many surviving manuscripts there were of that? 643 compared to 24,633. Let me sum it up. F.F. Bruce put it this way. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. He goes on to state, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. That leads us to the second kind of objection. If the first one was intellectual, I call the second one practical. And it comes down to this. I want to be Lord of my life. Right? Because listen, if Christ is raised from the dead, we can't just accept some of what he said. We got to pay attention to everything he said. If Christ is raised from the dead, he's not only our Savior, he is Lord. There's a couple verses to this end in the New Testament. Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 14.9, we read it earlier. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul gets right to it in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And I understand what, what goes on between here and here. As we witnessed to a gal one time, and, and she was at a dark place in her life, and, and she said, I, my heart wants it, but my head's saying wait, because I know if I... Except that I'm giving control over to somebody else. I say, you're right, and we're not here to push it. We'll pray for you. Two weeks later, she called. Yes. Yes what? Yes to Jesus. But she was right in what she was thinking about. It does mean giving control over to another. And we struggle with that as humans, right? But I want to tell you something from a biblical perspective. You have a Lord, whether you realize it or not. We all do. And we think, if it's not Christ, it's me. I want to be Lord of my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want to tell you what the Bible says about that. Romans 6.20 says, when you were slaves of sin. 
Now we're talking about the real Lord apart from Christ. You were free in regard to righteousness. Slaves of sin. And then he asks a question, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? I'm going to paraphrase that as, how's that working for you? If sin is your Lord and, and you wake up at three in the morning and you're thinking about the ultimate matters of life, are you really fulfilled? Are you really confident about eternity? Or is there, there a hole there? For the end of those things is death. That's where the Lord of sin takes us. Thank God there's another Lord. Part of the resurrection, when we talk about the risen Lord, is freedom and victory over sin. Verse 22, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's holiness and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Choose your master. That's what Paul's saying. Choose your master. I want to choose Jesus Christ, of whom it's said in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have you made that choice for Jesus Christ? Another proof of the resurrection is changed lives. I talk about freedom and victory over sin. That's not just theoretical. I had breakfast with someone this week who said for years of their life, they struggled with pornography and lust. And he said those chains were finally broken. I said, when did that happen? Two years ago. And I said, what happened? He said, I got tired of it. And I cried out to God and said, God, Help me break these shackles of lust in my life. And he said, I'm free. I'm sitting here free from that two years later. And he went on to say, if you know of any men in the midst of that battle right now, I want to meet with them and help them through because I know there's victory to be had in Christ. It set, set him free, the power of the risen Lord. As we think about a, a, a Savior, as Paul says, crucified in weakness but raised in power, it tells us something it tells us that even in the darkest moments, which the enemy intends for evil, God can work for good. God can work for good. There's power, resurrection power in our weakness. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 12, and I like the way A.B. Simpson translated this verse. He's the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. 2 Corinthians 12.10, he said, Therefore, I take pleasure in being without strength, in insults, and in being pinched, and being chased about, and being cooped up in a corner for Christ's sake. For when I am without strength, then I am dynamite. I saw this in a friend's life recently, a, di a different friend. I saw my phone ringing, I knew his name, I answered, and I could hear crying right away. There was brokenness on the other end. And I asked him what happened. He said, well, my wife asked me a hard question the other day. I said, what was it? She asked me if I've ever looked at porn. And he said, the last time I looked at it was years ago, but I had to answer yes. 
And he said it hit her so hard, she told me she wanted me to move out. And he ended up on, in a trailer on their property. So he went out to that trailer. And he's in that trailer. And he cries out to God. He says, God, I cannot fix this. There's nothing I can do to make this right. I need you to help fix this in my family. This, this trust issue, everything that's broken, I can't do it. I need you. And it wasn't long after that that he heard a noise at the door of the trailer. It was his wife, and, and she said, what was that noise? And he said, what noise? She said, I, I thought I heard a gunshot. I thought you tried to take your own life out here. He said, I didn't hear anything. She came into the trailer, sat down. They ended up talking, praying, working through some things, and she invited him back into the house. The next morning, the son and the family saw dad back in the house, and he's like, are you allowed to be back in here now? And <laughs> He said, yeah, and the son said, I was praying for that. I was praying for that. But God's victory got even better because as I talked to this guy, he, he told me that it used to be that he wasn't the leader in his home. And that all of this was a wake-up call to him. He said it used to be that when I'd open my Bible in the morning, it was just like something to check off the list. But since this, I can't wait. I can't wait to open my Bible and see what God has for me. And I can't wait to be the man God's called me to be in my home. It went beyond there. He said he went to work. And there was a co-worker there who was distraught. And he went over and asked him, how are you doing? He could tell from the answer it wasn't good in that guy's own house. He was going through some stuff. And he told me, I did something I have never done in my life before. I told him about the Lord. He said, I told him about how the Lord is helping our family through a hard time. And he's just crying. He's so excited that he told somebody about the Lord. Now look at that. It started in a moment of weakness, right? And in a cry of weakness, I can't do this, God. I need your help. And then God went to work. There's freedom and victory over sin. Not just forgiveness. Freedom and victory. There's resurrection power available. So with all this on the table, is that... For you and I as Christians just to celebrate here on Sundays in our little homes and kind of keep it to ourselves? Oh, no. Oh, no. I want to talk to you about the word go. Because it shows up even in the resurrection accounts. Matthew 28, 6. After the angel tells those women he's not here, he is risen. He says, go quickly. Tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And later on, when the women meet Jesus, you see him tell the women in verse 10, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Then, of course, the great commission to the disciples and every believer, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's why we're still here on planet Earth. It's one reason this church exists. So I want to say, if you're here this morning and you haven't received Jesus by faith, I want you to hear what Paul says. Listen to these words from God, his invitation. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you haven't done that, could today be the day? But I also want to tell you, it's not just preachers at pulpits like this or, or at sunrise services earlier when Daniel preached. The going is every believer. There is a Jewish believer in this church I told you about a couple weeks ago. She was at our sunrise service this morning. I already told you that she was sharing with her Jewish family that, that Jesus is the Messiah and her brother thinks she's crazy, but she said, that's okay. That's okay. Th this weekend, they had a Passover Seder. And she told me she invited Larry from the church here to join their family's Passover Seder. And Larry walked through how the Passover points to Jesus with her whole family. She's going to her family. She's taking the message of the Messiah. I think about going in. I think about the loss of Sergeant Tommy Tiemann a couple weeks ago. You remember Kevin standing up here and inviting people to go down the next morning. I want to show you a picture that Daniel took. That's a group from the church next door that showed up there. And at first, we didn't know what was going to happen. We saw cadets running this way and that way, and, and they, they told us, just wait outside. We, we prayed for all of them. There was a police chaplain that joined us in that circle. Later, Kevin and another police officer joined us. But one of the highlights for me was Kevin's wife, Johanna, said, you've got to come in here and see what's going on. And I went in the room where all the police cadets were sitting, and there were older officers talking to him. These police cadets look like they could be my kids. I mean, these are young guys. I'm looking at them like, wow, how young. But these older officers are up front speaking of their faith in Jesus Christ and how important it is to know where you stand for all eternity. And talking to Kevin, he said that was really important because some police officers really will only listen to other police officers because it's one thing coming from a pastor. But when it comes from another guy that's out there with you, it's a whole different thing. Those guys were going with their coworkers in a time of need. And I don't want you to think that going has to look like a, a long sermon. It doesn't. I want to leave you with a video about the power of 25 seconds. Keep this in mind as you think about going and representing Jesus in your words and your actions. I used to have a FedEx guy who was on my route, changed my life. The FedEx man who uh, only spent about 25 seconds uh, with nearly every single house. What could you possibly do in 25 seconds to help anyone, right? I mean, that's just cruise control conversation. Uh, that's throwaway time. I used to think that. Bullcrap. I've learned it's more valuable than a whole lot of the 15-minute, 20-minute conversations that I have with people. His name was Robert, and he used to deliver packages to our house, and, you know, he'd come, and, and it would be the most genuine, most infectious smile, most infectious laugh you've ever seen in your entire life. How's the family? How are the boys? They still fishing? You know, when my son would catch a big bass, he'd come over there and look at it and crow over it like a, like a proud daddy. When my other son, my younger son, would be playing basketball 
out there. He'd always grab the ball and take one big three-point <laughs> shot. Make it or not, he usually made it. And run back to his truck, get back to work. He was infectious. He was one of the biggest lights I ever known in this whole world. You know, we started looking forward to him pulling in. And my boys would go outside just to talk with Robert, a guy that they would see for 25 seconds. They would literally go, my boys wouldn't go outside to meet uh, a famous actor <laughs> or a famous musician. They don't care. They're going to be sitting on the couch. But they go outside for Robert. On paper, we couldn't have been more different. He was a black guy, tatted up from his head to his toes, dreadlocks, and here I am in my, my camo shirt, my cowboy boots, and my ball cap. None of that stuff mattered. He made every second count, and that's what I remember about him. Robert was shot and killed around 10 p.m. or so in a rough neighborhood back in August of last year, just downtown sitting in his truck. He left behind a wife and seven kids, and he was the exact same age as me. The reason I'm telling y'all this is maybe you got a job that you spend 25 seconds with people all day long. You think it don't matter. I cried the day Robert got killed. Last time I cried was when my granddaddy died back in 1999, which was about 24 years ago. He mattered that much to me. So, we're going to take that 25 seconds, or we're just going to throw it away. Yeah, I know. I'm totally aware that, you know, not everybody in those 25 seconds wants to receive love. I get that. But most people are desperate for it. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus was talking about the last days, and he said, Because of the increased wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I'm not going to let that happen to me. Y'all know the words of the famous Alabama song, I'm in a hurry and don't know why. I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. Ask about their family. Ask about their kids. Robert delivered packages and spent 25 seconds with us at a time, and yet I'm still sitting here talking about him long after he's gone. I hope this video makes you think about the way you spend 25 seconds with people for the rest of your lives. God bless you. Be good. Power of 25 seconds. I want to close where we started with those three questions McDowell would ask on campus. Who are you? Through faith in Christ, you can be a son or daughter of Almighty God. Why are you here? For Jesus Christ, for his glory and his kingdom. Where are you going? For eternity with him. All the answers are there cross, the resurrection, our risen Lord. Father, thank you for this day we celebrate the empty tomb. And I pray for the different groups in this room. There's some for whom that forgiveness, they, they came in carrying a weight of sin this morning. And they needed to hear about that feast that you provide, that you are the bread of life. You offer the living water we might be declared righteous and redeemed and your wrath is satisfied by Christ. Lord, if they haven't come to you in faith to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, draw them home, please. There's someone here that we talk about the freedom and victory, the power over sin in the resurrection and maybe that hit home. Maybe they're in a struggle right now. I pray that 
that the risen Lord would meet them where they're at, that they'd cry out to you, maybe in weakness, just like our friend in this story, that, God, I can't do it on my own. I trust you can. Help me. Help me overcome. And then, Lord, lastly, we all got people in our lives that, that we may spend 25 seconds with, some more. And I pray that you'd lead us as we go out from here, as you sent those women, as you sent the disciples, you send us. May you help us have eyes open, hearts open, ready for those moments to show your love and speak the truth of your gospel. We're here for just a short time. Help us make the most of it. Lord, I pray as we take our offering, it would be from gratitude for a king who died and rose again, that he might be Lord of all. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.